0: Welcome to Talk is Jericho's the pod of rock and roll, and here we go. The Duff McKagan joke of the week.
1: Hey, Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan here. Uh, you know, everybody's stressed out during this, this time. My, I have a pet lizard. He's uh, stressed out, so I got him some, some value, you know, they're like chilling up. And now I got a calmer, calmer, calmer chameleon. Thank you very much. Bye.
0: Calmer, 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 calmer chameleon. <laughs> oh, that made me laugh. Say that 10 times fast. Calmer, 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 calmer chameleon. I love Joe uh, love Duff's jokes, that goofy bastard and uh, we thank him for getting our weekend started with a little little laugh, especially during this crazy time in the world. We need laughs. And that's also why Winnipeggers are delivering new episodes every Thursday at 9 p.m Eastern. So this week uh, we started to share some stories about first time drunk shit mix and swamp juice and all the ways used to get the alcohol out of the, out of the house to parties. Ribos hairspray bottle might be the funniest and of course there are some amazing puking tales to go along with it so come laugh with us or add us on my youtube channel and facebook page and like i mentioned there is no saturday night special tomorrow night but i will be back next saturday september 5th right after AEW's all out pay-per-view and the mimosa mayhem match so watch the pay-per-view and then come talk about it with me right after i'll be live on my youtube channel and facebook channel facebook live right after uh, all out september 5th so right now sam adonis Is back on Talk is Jericho. Yes, he's been here before as a guest. He joined us for uh, Talk and Shop, Mexico City with Gallows, Anderson, and Enzo was the special fourth man. It's the first time Sam and I met, and he's done a lot in the past few years that I thought uh, he should come on and tell us about uh, his crazy gimmick in CMLL in Mexico with the flag and, and Donald Trump's face on it. He's a Trump supporter there, of course, in Mexico, getting huge heat, got a lot of heat, a lot of mainstream press coverage. He'll tell us about that. Also talking about the hair versus hair match he had with Negro Casas and sharing some of the crazy stories that happened to him while living in Mexico for two straight years. And, of course, he's got some great stories about his four years in the UK working for Brian Dixon. And Sam's wrestling career actually got started with WWE. Uh, He was signed to FCW. Explains why that didn't work out the way he hoped. Uh, Sam Adonis coming back here on Talk is Jericho. All right. So um, back in the days when we used to travel the world, and have shows in front of people i met uh one sam adonis in mexico city actually did i meet you in pittsburgh first i don't remember where i met you first no
1: it was mexico city because i was actually coming to meet uh big luke gallows and that was the night you had a uh, interview recorded with him so i was able to sit in and hang out that's right you've
0: been on this show before on one of the uh, talking shops with uh with gallows and
1: anderson Oh yes, and you got to meet uh, my, my ex girlfriend at the time, and I don't know if I could say that you met me in a high point or a low point in my life, but maybe we'll hit that a little bit later in this. Well,
0: point being, and like we said, the one thing for sure is that you were very popular or very hated in Mexico at the time. It was it was a uh, kind of in the midst of your big run uh, as uh, what was it called the the what were
1: you called the nickname El Rudo de las Chicas. You're, you're, you're mean to the women? <laughs> no, no. The ladies' bad guy would probably be the literal translation.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, like like I said, that was a pretty cool time, and, and we'll talk about that. But, but it's interesting to me. You just said something, um, and the reason why we're doing this is I've been talking to quite a few people over the last few months, uh, independent wrestlers, uh, people that travel the world, like we said, going to Mexico or Japan like you have. And now all of that is basically gone with no – 401k or unemployment or that sort of thing so it's interesting to me and to a lot of people what guys like yourself have have gone through due to no fault of your own uh, in the middle of this pandemic how much has it affected your your life and your career and your your
1: financial status well, I think more than anything, it just kind of you know throws a wrench in your everyday way of life. Uh, I mean, you know what it's like to be on the road and travel, and you know have deadlines. You know, waiting till this Tuesday or next Friday or whatever. It kind of puts chapters in your book of life. Since all this has happened, when the, you know the pandemic came down and everything virtually closed, it almost feels like I'm in a state of purgatory. I don't know what my existence is. I don't know what I'm looking forward to. I don't know why I'm working towards it. But, uh, I mean, it's definitely taken a lot of the wind out of not just my sales, but everybody else. And uh, I've actually had to re- resort to, you know, finding other employment. Uh, you know, I'm young and well-able-bodied, so I had to make sure that I could do whatever I could to, you know, take care of business. And that's why, I, at this current moment, I am uh, delivering smiles daily for Amazon. See, but that seems like it's probably one of,
0: the, one of the busiest jobs that you can have right now is, is Amazon. Like, everybody's ordering everything
1: from there. Oh, it's absolutely packed all the time. You know, uh, they actually bumped up the hourly wage for the incentive because there's so many people, uh, you know, they need so many drivers now. So when this actually happened, you know, I, I put out the, uh, something on my social media saying, Hey wrestlers, you know, if you're in the same boat as I am, Amazon is hiring, you know, and, uh, a lot of us aren't necessarily college educated you know, we might not exactly qualify to get the, the best desk jobs or whatever other jobs are available. So, uh, you know, I kind of put a public service announcement out there and, uh, I know a couple of wrestlers that have signed up, but I mean, it's, it's a pretty cool gig. You know, you basically get to have your independence and, uh, you know, it's not too difficult. And at the end of the day, you know, there's some, uh, time left over to listen to some podcasts while you're uh, behind <laughs> the wheel.
0: But so, so were you wrestling full time with no other, uh,
1: uh, income necessary for the last few years? It was seven and a half years that I've been, uh, I've wow. been yeah, and I've been very fortunate because I like to think I'm one of the uh, you know, most experienced wrestlers you've never heard of. Uh I, I've been able to uh I'd say that. I had a WWE contract in 2011 and this was actually about a year and a half before my brother signed with WWE. And your brother is Corey Graves. WWE's Corey Graves. Yes. Yeah, and mm-hmm. even though I look like Michael Cole, Graves is my brother. <laughs> but uh yeah, so after that, um, William Regal hooked me up with uh, All Star Wrestling. Brian Dixon in the UK. I went over there and lived in the UK for four years, where we worked full time. And that was, you know, probably as close to a modern day territory as you're going to get, because you know we were doing four or five nights a week with the six hour uh, car rides, and you know you have a a girl you like to meet in every town and whatnot. So you know that was a pretty good experience. But that ultimately led me to Mexico, where I spent two years. And since then, I was living in Pittsburgh and, uh, you know, working for all Japan in Japan, obviously, and just, uh, you know, trying to stay busy on an independent circuit here in the States. But all that has been, you know, swept away, as you should say. Right. Well, let's go back a bit. So you you mentioned
0: you're Corey's brother, younger or older?
1: I would be his younger, bigger brother. (laughs) <laughs> That's, that'd be the so best way to explain that. Did
0: you guys grow up wrestling fans, wrestling each
1: other in the, in the field, in the street, in the backyard? Absolutely. Um, my dad is probably, I mean, you could probably only even go as far to call him a bit of a historian now. Mm. Uh, my, my dad would have been considered a smart mark before that term ever existed. <laughs> so back in the 60s, you know, he had all the magazines and, you know, a lot of his friends were into that. So my dad and brother watched wrestling through the 80s before I was even born. And then I was born on August the 9th of 89. And uh, I was born into a wrestling culture, if you will. Like we had all the videos, we had the big LJN toys. And, you know, some of my earliest memories is of wrestling that happened 10 years before I was born because we had the magazines, you know, we had the toys. And, you know, I don't ever remember being introduced to wrestling. It was just something, you know, just there like, yeah. around the house. Yeah. And, and honestly, like, you know, everybody has their childhood favorites because we had the videos and whatnot i was almost studying the wrestling of an era before when i was a kid mm-hmm. so even though like let's say you know hogan and warrior were on top i had my videos with jerry lawler or bruiser brody and you know all the the uh, bill watts territory or the you know tully blanchard uh, southwest territory just watching all that stuff so i was basically born a wrestling nerd if you will
0: so you knew you wanted to do this your whole life then
1: it wasn't even really necessary necessarily a decision that i wanted to do it i always knew i was going to do it which was kind (laughs) of weird i'm really big in all this uh positive thought and you know just uh you know dream it do it type things and i mean i was 300 pounds when i graduated high school i never had a girlfriend until i was 19 but it was never really like it never bothered me because i knew it's okay one day i'll be an internationally famous wrestler it's okay. No, no, right now is not my time in the future. I'll get it. And you know, that ideology, if you will, has almost, you know, steered me in the right direction to accomplish almost everything I wanted to accomplish. So
0: 300 pounds when you graduated high school,
1: 294 was the highest I've ever clocked in at. Wow. Yeah. When I was in high school, I mean, I was, I was like a class clown. I had a lot of friends, but you know, like I said, I was a bit of a wrestling geek and, uh, I would oftentimes skip the party that everybody's going to on a Friday night to get in, to get in the car with my brother and drive six hours to Philadelphia so he could wrestle for Ring of Honor, or 3PW or something. So, you know, I knew a lot of these guys, a lot of the guys that are on top now, you know, I've known since I was about 12 or 13 years old. And, you know, in a way, I always say that if your parents owned a bakery, chances are you can bake a pretty damn good cake. And, you know, I I look at it just, you know, being lucky enough to be able to be in locker room since I was such a young age. I've had a different outlook on wrestling, maybe compared to someone else my age. And I think in the end, it's kind of helped me out.
0: So when you started wrestling, were you still a a bigger guy?
1: Yeah, I was uh, I was about 275, 280 right when I started training at 16. But, uh, you know, it just kind of clicked with me. I was very confident in the ring. I felt like a natural. My dad was actually an independent promoter at the time, so we had our own. Wow, no kidding. Well, when I was 16 years old, I mean, every kid wants to be out of their parents' house, and you don't necessarily have enough money to go do everything every night, be seen, and uh, be in there practicing everything I can, and it kind of came naturally. You know, I was very agile for my, you know, chubby butt, so it worked out okay. (laughs)
0: What made you decide to lose weight? Because you're definitely not even close to that now.
1: Uh, honestly, it was... The, I've always wanted to lose weight. I've always wanted to be, you know, just... I want to look like Hulk Hogan or The Rock or whatever. But the thing that spurred it was actually, like, uh, turning heel. Because when I started wrestling in the beginning, I was just, you know, small-town babyface, Sam Polinski. You know, that was just local boy gimmick. What a Pittsburgh name, Sam Polinski at the Iron Range. There was absolutely nothing there whatsoever. And, you know, they're just... It wasn't clicking on all fronts, so I bleached my hair blonde and, you know, kind of went to the the dark side, if you will, and everything started clicking because, you know, I was such a fan of the heels from the 70s and 80s, you know, I was basically a throwback to the Valiant Brothers or Superstar Graham, a little bit of Dusty, and I was very good at making myself look like an ass, if that makes sense. <laughs> so uh, it became one of the things where I was, you know, I was very confident being hated And like I said, you know, earlier, that was the chapter in life where you started getting a little bit more experience. You were staying busier. you were looking forward to next week's match, next week's match, leaving Pittsburgh a little bit, you know, just trying to find my niche in the wrestling business. And that's when it was when I was able to take it a little bit more seriously. And that's when it wasn't difficult to diet. That's when, you know, it became something I wanted to do as opposed to something, you know, I had to do. And, you know, clearly uh, it was a little bit nice too, to, you know, lose my weight and start getting the attention of some nice young ladies. So
0: <laughs> you mentioned that you were in NXT, would you say 2000 and what year was
1: it? 2011. It was actually FCW. I mean, you must've just been a kid. I was 20 years old when I got the offer. I was 21 when I signed. So I actually got there. I was 21 and about three months when I got down to Florida and I at the end of the day, hindsight being twenty twenty, you know, I was way too young to be there, you know? Well,
0: yeah, I'm surprised that they signed you that young. They usually stay away from 20s and 19s and that sort of
1: age limit. Well, I think I might have been the reason why they started staying away from them that age. <laughs> so uh, I, I actually did this against my brother's will. I sent in a video, a, a nice package to uh, actually just to the headquarters of uh, Stanford. And I got a, a phone call about extra work. And they said, hey, we're doing Baltimore and uh, D.C. Do you want to be an extra? And I'm like, of course I do. And I said to my brother, said, "Hey, I'm going to be an extra." And he says, "You're not ready." And hmm. I'm like, "Well, I mean, I'm sorry, but i got going to go to this." You know. Next thing you know, my brother's been working for you know ten or twelve years before me, and his little brother, who's been working a year and a half, gets a contract. So wow. Yeah, yeah. That. Worked. How did you get a contract so fast, though? It must be pure good looks, I guess. Because I, <laughs> I don't know what the hell else I had at that point. I worked my butt off. I really did. I'm not one to ever, you know put things down to luck. You know, I think you get exactly what I, out of life as you put into it. And I think at that point in time, you know, I wanted it and I was working for it. And uh, I don't know what I did, right place, right time. I'm sure it had something to do with it, but they gave me, gave me an opportunity. And uh, I mean, I don't know if they regret that opportunity, but it definitely changed my life for the better. Yeah. Well, someone must have seen something in you for sure. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's what it's got to be. The thing that, uh, again, it might have been an undeserved undeserved sense of self-worth, but, Mm -hmm. you know, at that point in time, I was feeling so good about myself. I knew what I was capable of. And I knew even on these small independent shows in the Northeast, I knew, you know, what I can get out of an audience. I knew how to connect with the audience. I was very confident. Okay, uh, what I'm doing is different than what everyone else is doing. I know that if I got this, you know, in the right opportunity, in the right light, you know, we can turn it up a little bit and make something out of it. And I think that might've been how I carried myself, you know, whether people, people could have seen it as, you know, overconfident or cocky, or if it was just confidence, I think that at the end of the day is what got me the opportunity, but you know, they they threw me the touchdown pass that slipped through my fingers. How was it
0: for you when you got let go, you know, a year and a half later or whatever it was?
1: Well, it was uh, a little bit bittersweet because, uh when I was there, I had a knee surgery and that's what really put me back behind the the cart. You know, I was really just fighting from behind. And then when I came back, I was out of shape. I was sad, depressed. I was overwhelmed. I was way in over my head and I knew, you know, something needed to change and I didn't know how to make it happen. So honestly, my brother gave me a phone call. It was a Wednesday. My brother called me and said, guess what? I said, what? He goes, I'm coming to Florida. I said, what? He goes, they just called me. My brother got hired on a Wednesday, and that was the glimmer of hope I needed to become confident and excited to know that this is time to turn things around. Two days later, I got a phone call from Johnny Ace telling me that he wishes me the best in my future endeavors. Oh, So two days, under, for two days, I worked in the same place as my brothers did, which I guess oh, man. yeah, kind, kind of cool. But
0: well, the, And that's one of those things, though, Sam, that as a young guy, as cool as it was to get signed when you're that young... Were you mature enough to handle getting let go? How did that affect you?
1: Uh, Honestly, at that point, like I said, I was a little bit over my head, in over my head. So it kind of was a bit of a relief. It almost felt like, oh my goodness, it's over. You know, I never, there's never been a second in my career where I didn't know I'm going to continue. There's never been a thought of not doing this. You know, I, I would just as soon work at the counter to seven 11 and wrestle, you know, every weekend for 20 bucks at a local Pittsburgh show. If that's what wrestling was reduced to for me, mm-hmm. you know, because you know how it is. It's in your blood, it's in your yeah. soul. So, uh, you know, there's never been any point given up, but at this point in time, um, I was really good friends with a couple of the British guys that were over there, uh, rampage Brown and um, Tom Latimer's his name from uh, Brom from TNA. And, Every single day, every Wednesday, we'd go to, you know, the Orlando Armory or the Largo Armory, and we would talk about British wrestling. I said, please tell me about British wrestling. What's Brian Dixon like? What's this like? And they were explaining to me, and it was almost like an escape, just listening about how cool this little territory they work for is. And that's right about the time where I started driving Regal to TV. Every once one Wednesday a month, he would come into FCW, and I'd pick him up and take him to TV tapings. And he actually talked to Dr. Tom Pritchard and says, hey, if you don't mind, just have Sam get me every week. And at that point, I was just picking his brain, but it wasn't what your average FCW wrestler would ask him. I'm saying, hey, tell me stories about Johnny Kidd and, and uh, you know, Haystacks, or da, 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 Giant Haystacks. Tell me about Marty Jones. And, you know, it was almost kind of like, a, you know, again, the inner wrestling nerd out of me. Is kind of what, uh, you know, but that's
0: you know, for for, for a 22 year old kid or whatever to be going that back into British wrestling, that's a deep dive. There, were you watching the tapes and everything?
1: I had so many tapes and and just the the YouTube and whatnot, I was so fascinated because, you know, in my opinion, wrestling I like the fact that wrestling is different all over the world, right? You know, I think it it establishes that you have to change your style and your performance based on the audience and how they live their lives you know, so clearly a Mexican audience is going to be different to a British audience, which will be different Absolutely. to the Japanese. And, and I was always fascinated by by this. And I, I mean, of course I'd love to be the, you know, I'd love to be the most famous wrestler on the planet, but one thing that's always, you know, been in my heart, I want to be the best wrestler on the planet. And I feel like, you know, if you want to do brain surgery, you can't not know the anatomy of a foot or a hand. Right. You have to understand it all. So, you know, even though it didn't really apply to my everyday career in FCW, I wanted to talk to Regal about this. I wanted to hear what British wrestling was like, you know, every once in a while he'd get in the ring and show us a, t- a thing or two. And I just took it as, you know, just opening the knowledge bank and putting deposits in. And in the end it kind of helped me because after my release, he was able to put me in contact with Brian Dixon and get me a job where I remained for the next four years. The
0: famous Brian Dixon has been doing it for freaking 35, 40, 50 years uh one of the most famous promoters in english history uh what were your experiences like with him and you have to do an imitation if you can
1: oh there, there you are then oh I, I, <laughs> the only thing the, the,
0: <laughs> robbie brookside he's a guy i've never met brian dixon but i feel like i have because brookside's imitations of him
1: okay good man okay yeah that's <laughs> that's about as good as it gets but i was around so many people that did his impression every day i got along great with brian again, it's I think it's just a little bit of my obsession with wrestling. I was never fascinated to just, you know, be a fly on the wall. I would ask questions. And we lived in his house in England, where his office was built every day every day he'd come in for five or six hours, and I would just talk to him about booking towns and how to how to release the newspaper article. How do you run the saying? Well, what happened? Tell me what happened there. And you know, in a way, it's just I was able to to learn from him, you know and Brian's not necessarily the most sociable person. A lot of times he thinks that us wrestlers are just, you know, cattle that need herding, but you Typical know, just motor, right? Exactly. <laughs> he he was able to give me a wealth of knowledge. And again, everything that I've, uh, you know, done in my career has been an extension of my past experiences and, you know, just adding new knowledge to that is, is going to make me a better performer. So the time I had with him, I look at it as invaluable and just, I mean, some of the best wrestlers on the planet were wrestling for Brian Dixon at the time. And, you know, again, it it was almost a culture that wasn't really in the forefront of the internet wrestling community. So there's guys like James Mason, Frankie Sloan, Robbie Brookside, Michael Whiplash, Rampage Brown. These guys, in my opinion, they're better performers than a lot of the top independent stars. But because they're more worried about tomorrow night's paycheck in a different town than they are here, let me get this tweet out real quick. Let me go viral. You know, they were almost passed up for years. So, I mean, wrestling every night of the week with these guys, you know, like I said, probably close to 150 matches a year for four years, you know, as a younger guy, like, you know, I am wishing for an era and a territory that is years past. I was lucky to have that experience to learn as much as I
0: can. Yeah, that, that's, were you living over there full-time
1: or were you do tours there? Or? I was living there full-time. Uh, I would be there about probably six months at a time, maybe come home for a month and then go back and just, you know, keep going. Because like I said, it was at that point in time i was you know 22 years old i didn't really have anything keeping me here and i knew it was all going to just be part of the process to become as good of a wrestler as possible so you know i learned where did you live there there, right outside of liverpool a town called birkenhead but uh yeah i mean we were on the road so many times a year just these car rides that's actually where i met robbie brookside his final summer wrestling with brian was one of the summers i was there Hmm. So we wrestled a couple of these eight men tags and we would go on these, you know, six hour car rides from Minehead to Skegness. And I, the same thing with Regal, I would just ask him questions and just chip away at him to the point where a lot of the wrestlers were annoyed. They're like, God, you guys ever stop talking about wrestling? You know? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> uh, but again, I look at these things, you know, as, as definite definitive moments in my career, because, you know, that knowledge that I was able to pick from some of these people have stayed with me to this day. What were some of the differences in the British uh, wrestling matches, like actually in the ring? Um, There wasn't too many at this point because uh, the UK at that point in time, they almost sold you on American wrestling. The posters would say, American wrestling, American wrestling. Um, A lot of the guys, they were so fluid and and would know how to do it. Uh, Like a James Mason, for example, he would know how to do all the classic British spots and whatnot. He basically was good at just, you know, teaching me different moves and things I hadn't seen before. But the place where I thought it was fascinating to work while I was over there was, uh, it's called EWP in Hanover, Germany with uh, Christian Eckstein. They did a lot of a different style. They actually had the old CWA style, you know, German wrestling rules where, you know, they did the 10 counts uh, or the, the breaks between rounds and whatnot. So, you know, that was a little bit different, but just having that, group of people with that much experience around me, you know, I was so excited and eager to learn because, you know, the audience more than anything is different. You need to understand what that audience wants to see. And, you know, just being able to play to where you're at, because for example, in Germany, those crowds were like, you know, very dignified. It was beautiful women in dresses and, you know, men in black ties, drinking a pint glass of beer, you know, It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily your trashy, you know, independent wrestling show. You kind of had to, you know, entertain them a little bit with more finesse and, you know, and and be more, you know, charming, if you will. Mm -hmm. Whereas some of the the British shows, you know, the holiday camps are basically just, you know, a thousand 12 year old kids that don't even really like wrestling. So you have to kind of simplify a little bit and just, it's just
0: something to do that night at the holiday camp.
1: Exactly. But in a sense, you know, that's, something that I think was a valuable thing to learn was because, I mean, anybody can figure out how to impress wrestling fans, but it's very difficult to get people that don't like wrestling to stay interested. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that was something that I, you know, I I turned myself into a master of because I was able to, you know, keep in my character and, you know, it was a very easy story to tell the big mean Americans coming here to take over England, you know, and, and just, you know, be mean to the kids and then next thing you know I'm getting my butt kicked I look like an idiot I get sent home people are happy. Right. So I mean there was just just different I think just like any job there's no substitute for experience and just being able to have that many matches a year that young in my career was you know an invaluable experience and I would you know not change it for the world.
0: And also spending that much time in a in a van with the guys traveling up and down the roads I mean did you ever have any breakdowns or robberies or close
1: calls or anything like that we would have uh we would i'm sure you've heard of the the legendary english miles where uh we would stop for a while and somebody that messed up and uh was found guilty in wrestler court would have to run a mile what is what do you have to do tell me you literally the the, the van will drop you off and then they drive one mile down the road oh. and you you have 10 minutes to get back to that car or else you have to do it again the next day so i actually had a mile for uh for stealing one of robbie brookside's signature moves on one of the Uh, matches and he was impressed because at the time i was still a bit chubby and i did the mile in eight minutes so (laughs) it's just one of those you know fun little things you do on the road to pass time you know so uh, yeah exactly with the young
0: boys right oh of course they ate it up. What about, um, so, so you said that you, you were there for four years and, and learned your trade. What finally made you decide that you had to leave and go somewhere else?
1: Well, honestly, I mean, Angelico, who's with you now at AEW, he, oh, yeah. was with, he was with me in the UK for a couple months. And we just became brothers. You know how it is. When you meet someone, sometimes you just click. And we became friends forever. And he knew at this point in time, I was such a big fan of Mexican wrestling. You know, it was like another box left to tick. So we would talk all the time about this Mexican wrestler, these guys, this famous match, this storyline. And he had the same thing. He was, man, how do you know all this as as an American kid? How do you know all this stuff about Lucha? You'd do well down there. So for about three or four years, he kept inviting me down to see him. And I just kept putting it off. Just, nah, next time, man, we'll, we'll get there. Right. Eventually, after four years, I had an opportunity to go back to WWE or so I thought. I had one of those tryouts. And, you know, I had changed a lot. I was a lot more mature. I knew I was going to be able to get this done this time. And I had the tryout and I didn't get the job. So that was really the motivation I needed. that I need to make a change. I need to do something. So I called Angelico and he says, you need to get here. I can't get you work. I can't get you, you know, meetings or anything until you get here. So I had three weeks until I was supposed to be back in the UK and I said, screw it. I'm going to Mexico. If, if I don't get any work, I'm at least going to go see Adam and hang out for a while. I get down there and just the the train started rolling fast and out of control because within about a month, you know, I was one of the top heels in CMLL.
0: Two things. Why, why did you not get the job in WWE?
1: What were you still missing at that point? I don't really know. I don't think anybody's ever told me that one. Gotcha. Uh, again, I could have just been still too young. I felt that it was the time. I feel like it was, you know, I, I would have been able to succeed that time around. Mm-hmm. But, you know, again, so it's, it's a big company. And, you know, I'm just another guy in line trying to get a job.
0: So when I went to Mexico the first time, to, to Mexico City, because I had worked in Monterey for a few months and kind of the, the word had got up to Paco about me and he'd seen some of my stuff, et cetera, et cetera. He knew right off the bat. I was just thinking about this the other day because I had to do um, a remembrance for him. It was the year since he passed away. And he knew from the start he wanted to make me a star, because my first match there was in the semi-main event, and then after that I was never anything lower than the semi-main event, mostly main events all across the country, um, right off the bat. And you mentioned within a month that you were one of the top heels in the country. He must have seen
1: something in you right off the bat as well? Well, I don't know if it was necessarily Paco Alonso. I think... uh I think it probably would have come, you know, from a little bit lower down the chain of command because initially I was just invited to train with them at uh, Arena Mexico. And for the people that don't know, I don't know how it was back in your day, but now it's almost organized like a professional sports team. You have to come to practice and perform at practice to mm. show yourself worthy for Friday nights. Interesting. They have 9 shows a week, you know, they have right. they're doing Guadalajara Arena Coliseo, Puebla and 3 at Arena Mexico. So I was invited to train and I think at the end of the day, it came down to the amount of experience I had, not necessarily as a wrestler or in Lucha, but as far as, you know, character building, being, a, you know, a, a being able to have a body of work that people can buy into. Mm-hmm. And I was there for one practice and I just, you know, gave it everything I had, you know, the agility I had and the ability of to emulate what I've seen in Lucha. You know, I kind of was able to step up and deliver as far as lucha libre drills go, but when they saw, you know, my character work and what, what I was capable of doing, that kind of fast tracked it. So the next day, I was at uh, I was at Ultimo Guerrero's wrestling school and talking to the Bandito, who's a good friend of mine, and he says, "Hey, um, Ultimo Guerrero needs to talk to you." And he's asked me all these questions about when are you staying, where are you going, are you going to be here there? So you need to go to Arena Mexico right now. I said, like, like, right now, he like, goes, like, in this moment, go down there. So I hailed a taxi from Apalaco over to Arena Mexico, get out. They invited me upstairs and says, okay, here's the deal. We're doing a pay-per-view in three weeks. You're going to be uh, Mr. America, you know, the t- Team America representative. And I'm like, hell yeah. I mean, I was excited about it because, in my opinion, if you, if you want to wrestle in Mexico, I mean, CMLL is the bar. Yes. You know, they're, the, they're the ones that keep the – The reputation of classic lucha libre and this going back into my ideology of wanting to be the best i want to learn that style whether or not i did it in my matches that's irrelevant i want to know it because you know i can wrestle with any of these guys around the world so when they presented me with this opportunity i was all in i was like let's do it and i was in a similar situation to you uh three weeks later the week before the pay-per-view the new poster had come out and my picture was front and center main event myself with uh, Tom Tonga and Tongaloa against Volador Jr. Um, Atlantis and uh, uh, Diamante Azul. So my first Friday night in arena, Mexico was a main event. And I mean, I don't think it's really happened too many times, you know, mm. since I've been able to do it. So it was surreal. And I just, you know, it was bad because a lot of the wrestlers took me out the night before and got me hammered drunk and I was hung over <laughs> for my first match, but uh, you know, such is life. It was a, a great experience. Rite of passage. Do they still have the
0: gym upstairs in Arena, Arena Mexico? Yes, and they still have the ring probably from 1963 in there as well. <laughs> Same one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. That's great. That's cra- it's, it's so amazing to me because I went back there um, when we started going to Mexico with WWE, probably 2012, 13, 14. And I went to Arena Mexico and I went and saw Paco. And just to be up in that place it never changes i mean they've upgraded a bit but it's the same building that's been there since the 30s or 40s or whatever it is just a little bit more you know redone and renovated
1: well it's amazing because they you know they call it the cathedral you know the cathedral of lucha libre which just you know that couldn't be more accurate because the amount of talent that has been through those doors is just phenomenal and you know what i say is that you know Lucha Libre is almost very misunderstood. I think so many Americans think it's just masks and, and high spots, you know, flying around. Whereas in my opinion, I think, you know, luchadores probably know 10 times more than most other wrestlers throughout the world. It's so diverse and they have a situation well- for everything.
0: And once again, you know, you wrestle according to what part of the world that you're in. You mentioned it earlier. If you're in Germany, you wrestled a little bit that style or Japan or this way or that way. But much like a good song is a good song, no matter how you dress it up. It could be heavy metal or or thrash metal or or a polka. A good song is a good song and a good wrestler is a good wrestler. The guy right above your shoulder right there is one of the greatest I've ever been in the ring with talking about Negro Casas uh, to this day. I've been hitting him up on Instagram for the last two years. I don't think he knows how to use it, but he's never texted me back yet. But I mean, what a what an amazing performer for any style. I don't give a shit what you want to call it. That's
1: one of the greatest psychological minds right there. Unbelievable. I mean, again, it, it blew my mind as a fan. You know, when I was 12 years old, the first time I ever saw Negro Casas was a video from Japan from 1991. It was uh, one of Grand Hamada's UWF shows. It yeah. was Negro Casas against Ultimo Dragon without the hood. And um, who is Negro Casas? Oh, wow, this guy's pretty fun, pretty, you know, exciting to watch and to know that, you know. Especially,
0: especially too, if you if you don't, like, you
1: know, you read the name on the poster
0: and it does not look like Negro Casas and you're like, who is this guy? Like, wh- that's the – how can he call himself that name? And they're like, oh, it just means, like, Bad News Island used to call him Black Houses because Negro is black and Casas is house. He's like, yeah, Black Houses. Who the f*** is Black
1: Houses? Black Houses, man! <laughs> I don't know where it comes from, but to this day, I mean, nobody can electrify an audience anywhere in this world at his age. Like he can Yeah. I mean, m- maybe Anoki can do it because he's a politician now as well. But when that guy comes out to the ring, Negro Cassis, his music hit, the the electricity in the building is something that's, you know, very hard to replicate. And yeah. just, I mean, I've probably been able to share the ring with him 50 or 60 times because we had a, you know, a feud, which ultimately led to him winning my hair. But just, you know, being out there and learning every match, you learn from them, you know. And it, it was one of those things because I was so excited to be in Mexico. I wanted to, you know, do as the Romans do and be a luchador. I wanted to do the high spots and, you know, show what I was capable of. And he was the one to calm me down and said, no, 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 man. Stop. You punch, and it you, easy. Kick. you punch and you kick and you look mean, we make money. I said, what? He goes, trust me. So every night we're going out there and, and, you know, we're really not having what you would call a five-star match. But these people were just bleeding for these matches. The arenas were full. It was something that in 2020, I think it's pretty rare. But, you know, we were able to do 10,000 tickets on on our uh, hair versus hair match.
0: Well, and that's the thing, Sam. Well, who's to say what a five-star match is? I would call that a five-star match no matter what. If you're drawing people in and they're interested and excited –
1: in mission accomplished it it was just surreal because you know again this is this is wrestling with these guys in a sense i almost felt like some of the mexicans or japanese wrestlers when i was a kid they were almost like gods because they felt unattainable i felt like you could go to the civic arena in pittsburgh and see hulk hogan or rick flair you're never going to see ultimo dragon Mm. to me that kind of was even bigger and then to know you know just everybody has their personal heroes and dreams for me to be able to say I headlined arena Mexico against Negro Cassis, you know, huge. it's unbelievable, you know? So, uh, it was just so surreal being with him. Like I said, I was able to, I beat blue Panther for his hair, which was just nuts. That's massive too. That blue, that turned me into a star overnight because the next morning people were literally screaming out of their cars, you know, swear words at the, at the big mm-hmm. gringo as I walked to the supermarket. But I mean the, the history and the, the place in Mexican wrestling history that I've been able to achieve, you know, it's, it's mind boggling. And, you know, I'm really proud of it.
0: Well, and let's talk, okay. Cause you mentioned you were the, uh, Las de las chicas, but that wasn't what got you the mainstream, uh, the mainstream publicity. And that was from being kind of the Trump supporter. Tell us about that whole story because you were on CNN and you're at USA Today. Like you had legit
1: mainstream pub. It was ridiculous is what it was. It was, it was definitely my 15 minutes, if you will, up to that point. <laughs> but uh, basically it all started because a NPR reporter was in town to do a story on Marco Corleone, uh, who's Mark Jindrak. He's been there for years. So they yeah, came. Mark there.
0: Jindrak was in WB and moved to Mexico and became popular and famous down there.
1: Exactly. Well, they came to do a story on him and I had just become, I just started coming out to the ring with a flag with Donald Trump's face on it. Uh, and this goes back to when I was in England. Every day for Brian Dixon, I'd come out to the ring with a flag. So, as silly as it sounds, there's a way to work a flag. It's not just a prop. You know, you how? A way, how do you work it? You just—it's the right timing. It's you know the way you, you you move it around. It's not just carrying it to the ring because there's so many there's so many people that are gonna you know they just have props. It's about knowing where to put it and you know how to how to put it into your match at the right spots. Whether you use it. You know, it's not just a prop in my opinion, but uh, basically he saw that and freaked out. He thought it was the most ridiculous thing he's ever seen. And he's going out there saying, oh my God, this is nuts. I can't believe they're doing this down here. So he was able to talk to the press department of CMLL and came back and talked to me. And the whole interview was in English. And I basically said to him, like, dude, this is just being a heel. I don't care about Donald Trump. I don't like Donald Trump. I'm not a bad person. I'm here to get these people in such a frenzy that when I get my butt kicked and just get beat all over this arena, they go home happy. And this guy who clearly was not a wrestling guy, his eyes lit up and you could tell like, Oh my gosh, that's, that's beautiful. You know, he was almost so taken back by it because he's never seen, you know, how selfless a heel can be that he went and wrote this article for it. And NPR is so uh, prestigious all over the place that within three or four days I'm getting phone calls from every news department on the planet. I had CNN vice Al Jazeera, Russia today, Bloomberg USA today, GQ did an article on me, everybody. I mean, everybody on earth came to Mexico city and I was sitting in the dressing room and there was 16, 17 reporters with cameras. And it was like literally a press conference you'd see, you know, for an NBA game or something like that. So that was all over the place. It was insane how they wanted to grab onto something that looks kind of, you know, dirty and controversial. But every single one of them that sat down and talked with me was just amazed that it was, you know, all in the done in the name of good faith. It was in, you know, in the... It was all done to give these people a great show and give them something to look forward to. Basically, this big American idiot getting his butt kicked.
0: Well, I love the uh, I just pulled up a picture of the, the American flag with Trump's face just pasted on it. Like, obviously, the heat is because he wants to build a wall and keep all the immigrants in Mexico. You know, listen, I got shot at a, a few times and a couple knives and and I was just, you know, a Canadian playing you know a good guy and they were like you know you Corazon de Lan we'll call you Corazon de Pollo heart of a chicken so what kind of a threats did you get when you're actually promoting Trump to those people
1: it wasn't as bad as people thought it would be just because I think a lot of people are acclimated to the, the concept of faces and heels down there. A lot of these people gotcha. would be so angry and right up in my face, drunk as can be getting ready to throw their kid on the ground and punch me in the face. But that same person would come back and, uh, you know, want a picture and an autograph after the show. Right. The two times that it kind of freaked me out. One time I was on lockdown in arena, Mexico by myself and it was a completely unrelated incident, but it terrified me. Uh, there was a shooting, a gang shooting out in the parking lot, in the parking garage, you know, on the back uh, back side of Arena Mexico there. And everybody was just running and there was chaos and there was pandemonium. So I don't know if you remember uh, Sandra Granados. Sandy? Yeah. Yeah, Sandy, she came back. She She's still there. She was the media lady. She was with uh, the, the ring um,
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 Wow. That's a blast from the past. Cool. She, uh, she came in and says, Hey, we wait right here. And I says, well, uh, I gotta go. My girlfriend's waiting for me. Said, no, no, no. Better we wait. Next thing you know, my girlfriend's blowing me up. So where are you at? What's going on? Are you okay? It was like a full blown riot outside. And I was <clears throat> locked inside the riot doors. at Arena right Mexico. The other time that was pretty bad was uh, I was leaving. I don't know if you remember Arena Lopez Mateos. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. As I was leaving there one night, I noticed a giant souped up, decked out black Escalade parked at about one o'clock. And I instantly, instantly caught my eye. I'm like, you don't see that car that many places around here. (laughs) So I take three steps and it starts inching up. So I stop, sign a few autographs and do this that, kill some time four or five more steps it starts inching up. And this thing, this guy immediately started following me. So I'm sitting there and I'm just, Hey, who wants an autograph? You know, come here. How do you think of the show tonight? Literally just killing time. Sent my girlfriend in to get the promoter and the girlfriend, uh, my girlfriend got the promoter out and he went over and talked to the guy and they were kind of arguing a little bit, seeing what was going on. I tried to play dumb to the whole thing. Promoter comes over and says, Hey, you go right now. Don't stop for food. Get out of here. Everything's okay apparently one of the uh, somebody had called from inside the arena and called one of the the local you know bad guys if you will and we're telling them about this uh American wrestler on the inside who was f- waving a Trump flag and you know god knows <laughs> god knows what could have happened if we didn't uh, if I didn't have some more personal awareness
0: <laughs> i was in acapulco once and um it was it was one of those ones like the crowd just turned to heel for whatever reason it was i think i was working a championship match against dandy so even though we are both uh, good guys in the single they're going to go against the, the the foreigner and in the middle of it there was a big issue and there's security guards and they stopped the match for a bit and I'm still screaming and yelling at everybody and match continues on that's it and afterwards Dandy tells me do you know what that that skirmish was about I said I don't some guy had a gun and was coming towards the ring to either wave at my face or shoot me or whatever and the cops saw him and stopped him and I was like why didn't anybody tell me that this happened? It's like, we oh, don't want to mess up the match. I mean, I go, I'm like, F- the match
1: Guy almost shot me, man.
0: <laughs> but that was Mexico for you. It's still a third world
1: country in a lot of ways. Well, honestly, like, uh, you know, I would tell everybody that it's not as crazy as you think it is. And maybe not yeah. Mexico City, but like I actually invited my parents down there and they came. I was working heavily with Ultimo Dragon at the time, and it was the one weekend where he had one of his shows where I was working on top against him. So I wanted my parents there. They came down. And uh, it's funny because every day I lived a very, very normal existence. I had my friends. Everything was fine. Never had any problem. As soon as my parents got there, we would see fights in the streets. There would be (laughs) robbers running down the street with a purse. I had to pay off the police twice. And they'll leave and say, what the hell are you doing down here, Sam? This is awful. you got to get out of here. You're going to get killed. And I'm like, trust me, it's not like that, you know? Why did you have to pay off the cops? My sister made a left turn uh, through a bus lane. Uh, luckily, that was right outside our house. So uh, my girlfriend went down and talked to the cop. And then we were right by the airport. And we had a rent-a-car van. And there was you know, six white people in the van. And they knew they could probably get some money out of us. So... I was lucky. Yeah, uh, When I was down there, I actually learned to speak Spanish Right, v- very fast, in fact, because of a little a little app called Tinder. <laughs> it was fantastic. I actually, uh, you know, being a young single guy down there, I was on Tinder every day just meeting people. And after enough time, you're just spitting game in Spanish. And next thing you know, I'm like, what the hell? I speak Spanish now. Jeez, so, uh, it was pretty I cool. There,
0: that, I wish there was Tinder when I was down. I learned to speak Spanish by watching fricking uh, Sabado Colosso on Saturday nights, whatever it's called.
1: <laughs> it helped. You know, like I said, at the time, my girlfriend was Mexican and she had two kids and we lived a very Mexican lifestyle. I didn't speak any English during the day. So at the end of the day, you know, that could directly be attributed to why I was able to maintain two years down there. Um, it, speaking the language was so helpful right right but at the end of the day you know i'm just i'm still to this day i get excited how cool it is that you know professional wrestling was able to teach me spanish
0: no and that's it's it's so cool like i when i was down there it was it was 93 to 95 but i was i wasn't fluent but i was 75 percent there man and it's one of one of uh not regrets but the fact that, that all of that slipped away from lack of practice because dude i was there like you said you're a young single guy if you don't learn to speak spanish you don't eat you don't get a drink you don't talk to chicks but when you can speak spanish man fish
1: in a barrel unbelievable one of the best times of my life you know i, I would yeah. trade that for anything um it, it definitely I, I had some pretty interesting experiences in my personal life like i said about uh, said ex-girlfriend that got pretty interesting for a while
0: what happened there
1: Well, basically what it came down to, this would be the abridged version, you know, uh, I won't mention any names, but her brothers were quite tied in with the wrong group of people. And, um, after about six months of dating, I was doing my best to try to get back to being this young, single, famous professional wrestler that I wanted to be. And she wasn't having that. It got pretty intense to the point where she was threatening my life, you know, on a very regular basis. Anytime we would get in a fight or anything, you know, she would say that, uh, you know, you're, you're never going to see your family again. We're going to throw your passport wow. away. And, and honestly, you know, I, I'm always, I always think that, you know, a lot of times there's just these these terrible relationships, you know, because a lot of times the guy's the bad guy. I've never seen it be, you know, the reverse, the, the roles being reversed where, you know, a woman could be so manipulative and just emotionally abusive and just hurtful. So, um, There was points where I literally thought I was gonna die, you know. There was one day I I stormed out of the house. I said, I'm tired of running, just have me killed. I'm done. I'm done. (laughs) And I walked to a hotel room that I that I ordered and she's waiting in the elevator for me to get to my hotel room. You know, just ridiculous stuff. Honestly, I could probably have a, a TV movie made about this relationship and it probably, you know, it would be on lifetime because it's a pretty tragic story, that's for sure.
0: How did you how did you
1: get out of that? I got booked on a show in Los Angeles and I got them to buy my flight from uh, Mexico City to L.A. L.A. to Pittsburgh, where I live now. And I told them I I said I'm going back to see my parents for a few weeks after this. I'll be back on you know May 29th or whatever, and just left everything I had in Mexico. Really, absolutely. So, to, to, and that
0: including your, you, were you still working for for
1: CMLL and everything? Yeah, I was still working for them. They had asked me to renew my work visa. Two days after I was supposed to, after I left for LA, they they said, "Hey, uh, Wednesday, can you come to the office? We're going to renew your visa." And I'm like, Ugh, "I'm going to be in Pittsburgh. I'll let you know when I come back." And you know, it, it got even more heated. It got even more uh, dramatic, wow. if you will, to the point where I I did not step foot in Mexico City for about you know probably eight or nine months because I was legitimately terrified. COVID
0: aside, would you go back to
1: Mexico now? I have been back to Mexico now. Gotcha. You know? Uh, things have calmed down and she's moved on a little bit. She's still reached out at times. And, uh, again, I think hindsight being twenty twenty. I think a lot of it was empty threats, you know, but at mm-hmm. the same time, I, I still think inte- intelligent enough not to, you know, test those waters. Uh, I think, uh, one thing I found is, is, you know, fr- from what I hear from a lot of my friends, apparently a lot of the Latina culture is very passionate in the love department. They like the fights. They like the drama. They like the action when you're not fighting, you're not loving. And I, I think it's kind of like the fact that we grow up watching Full House and Step by Step, and they grow up <laughs> watching they they grow up watching TV novellas, you know, <laughs> right, this drama right, and all this. Right, right, so, right, right. Uh, yeah, from what I understand, that's kind of normal, common practice. But I wasn't about to find that out the hard way.
0: So, so the door is still open though for you to go back and work for CMLL.
1: Kind of, uh, they're just such a closed door situation. You know, they're so tight lipped about everything. I've spoke to them on often many occasions, and I think realistically, to go back full time, I would have to live back there again. And I think I'm just beyond that at this point. Yeah, you know, it's I'm hard. S- yeah. So excited to have lived there for two years and learn the culture, learn the people, do everything I could do. But, you know, I- I'm 30 years old now and I, I like being here in, P- in Pittsburgh. Sure. Um, I-, I moved back to Pittsburgh because I'd finally started working in Japan. And that was something that kind of happened for me. So I kind of chose one over the other and it's not i don't know i just don't see it being in the card to turn there full time but,
0: but i mean and that's kind of the same same direction that my career went i knew when it was time to leave for me it was different because i was starting to branch out more and the, the the uh financial state of the of the country went down and all that sort of stuff the exchange rate went, went through the through the roof in a bad way but like you said you were there for two years you're not from mexico So you got everything you could out of it. You worked with like, tell us about some of the guys you love working with besides Negro that were there.
1: So many of them. I was very lucky because uh, again, like I said, just being the wrestling nerd that I was, I always preferred to be just, I wanted the energy. I wanted the heat. I wanted everything crazy. So a lot of the older guys liked to work with me because I was selfless. I didn't care about doing cool things and getting the attention for being a good wrestler. I just wanted the match to be craziest. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Blue Panther was just unbelievable to work with every night. I mean, talk about these in the same category as Negro, as far as being able to, you know, wrestle the Invisible Man for a five-star match. Just yeah. unbelievable being be in there with um, Ryo de Jalisco, Atlantis, uh, Volador Jr. was fun to work with. Um, There was different tiers back then when I was there because some guys you had to have that crazy, you know, fast paced Lucha match with other ones you had the brawl with. Uh, For example, La Parca, I still wrestle him probably, you know, four or five times a year in different cities doing hardcore, you know, because that's what he's known for. I was always able to adapt my style and work with everybody. But uh I mean I just liked sharing the ring with those the the veterans because I was able to gain so much knowledge from that. And uh, yeah, Ultimo Dragon, he's probably you know right at the top yeah. of the list there. He helped me out so much and he's the reason he was responsible for me to start working in all Japan. So anytime I looked uh was getting ready to work with him, I was always, you know, up in you know cloud nine. Uh, like I said, my parents were there, and that night I actually unmasked him in Arena, Mexico. And I had done it so many times at this point. After the show, I said to my dad, I said, what do you think? He goes, you unmasked Ultimo Dragon. I'm, <laughs> like, I'm like, what? He goes, Samuel, you unmasked Ultimo Dragon in Arena Mexico. And I just start smiling like, holy crap, I did This is amazing. <laughs> so it, it was just so cool to be there and just learn that much from all those guys. But I mean, I think the key is being able to adapt and, you know, kind of change what you've got to do to each audience and crowd. And like I said, at the end of the day, I just liked being able to get so many people riled up just so they went home happy after I got my butt kicked.
0: How was, uh, briefly tell me about the, you mentioned the hair versus hair versus with Negro as a match. How was it for you?
1: I absolutely loved it. Uh, if you ever have 30 minutes to, to, you know, check it out, I'll be more than happy to send you the link. I was on fire that night. I was nice. so, so pumped because I was angry because I didn't know I was losing. I, oh, I would. I was. Really? convinced. Yeah. Well, the, the thing is, I don't know how they did it back then, but they discuss money with you at the beginning when they make the plan. Mm-hmm. So this is what you're getting if you lose. This is what you get if you win. At this point, I was legitimately the number one heel in the company. I mean, we're drawing numbers. We're traveling. I, I'm going to different cities on top. You know, because my name, people are paying money to come see me get beat. So, and I don't know how familiar you are with Negro's Apuesta record, but Negro always loses. He's lost his, he's lost his hair 32 times or so. So I kind of had it in my, my brain. I'm like, there's no way I'm losing this. Yeah. This is just another part of the journey. And then, you know, we're going to build someone up and I'll lose it down the line on the night. They tell me I'm going down and I was just angry. You know, I would just had that, you know, it was one of those, all I can do is shove it up your ass kind of moments. And, you know, I felt it, I was working my butt off it was one of the most electrifying nights in my career. I was so just into the match; everything went flawlessly. Uh, I did a four fifty on Negro Cassis. You know, for <laughs> being a big guy, you know, it kind of it kind of eclipsed him beating me. Honestly, people couldn't believe that I busted something like that out. And as angry as I was, to this day, when I watch that match, I see an energy when he beats me that is basically lost in professional wrestling again. I'm so proud of that, that, that the, you know, the emotion that we created in that, that storyline and that feud had the people so wound up that you literally see, you know, they, they say it's the, the, you know, babies in the air expression when people jumped out of their arms and they throw their babies in the air, that's (laughs) what they did when he beat me. So as bad and angry as I was, you know, that I had to lose that match, that moment still means more to anything to me because it was, you know, so important. And I knew that we were responsible for making that emotion. But happen.
0: when you did this program, you didn't know that you were going to be
1: losing at the end. No, really? No idea. It was just when you, when you get the match, you don't know. When they tell you you're getting your match, they agree. If you win, if you lose this net, and, and I'm assuming what happened is over the years, people probably pull the double cross or bet on themselves or against or whatever. So right. now they're very tight lipped. Nobody knows until literally hours before the match. So all week, I'm thinking, okay, I need some ideas for both style, you know one side if, whether I'm up or down, I would just you know kind of creating this in my head. And then on the night, you know, I was kind of it, it definitely sucked the sails out the the wind out of my sails because I didn't expect that to happen. But you know, the show might love- go on. <laughs> You're- and you and- go ahead. I was just going to say, realistically, who the hell am I to complain? It's Negro Casas.
0: My favorite thing is, though, is you got your hair so tightly in the back, you look like you're bald anyways. You remind me of Norman Smiley when he, had, he lost a hair match. It's like, your hair's this long anyways, dude. No one's going to notice. At this point, it was shorter length, man. I
1: had, I had the, long, the, the flowing locks of Samson like you have right now back when I lost the hair. So
0: um just kind of touch upon briefly because i know at one point when you and i uh were hanging it's actually pretty funny let's tell the story because after we met up in mexico uh i was doing a signing in pittsburgh uh at a comic convention or whatever and you guys had a show in in pittsburgh so i went it's the first night i ever met brit baker and i went and uh to to t- hang out with you there and to see your show and uh to- it was
1: it was definitely wild because uh I barely have a in Pittsburgh up to that point anymore either. I'd been all over the world. And this was like my first show back in Pittsburgh in probably three years. So all my friends and family are there and you come and everybody's losing their mind and whatever. I was all excited to see you. And then after the show, we all go out to eat and I couldn't even talk to you because I was talking to all my aunts and uncles and everything. Yeah, yeah. So it was just a fun night. I mean, you definitely stole the show that night. People couldn't believe that you came to town. So it was, what did I do though? You, you what, I, in, introduced me to the ring, man. That was that was unbelievable. Everybody in uh, Pittsburgh lost their mind. That was like national wrestling news, you know? Chris Jericho <laughs> makes a surprise appearance at independent event.
0: Uh, as, def- as a ring announcer. I was the ring announcer for the match, but I didn't tell you. I said, just get uh, everyone's stats and I'll go to the ring. And, and I think you didn't even know I, I, when you came to the ring. I was like, I'm standing in this corner. And you're like, what the hell are you doing?
1: <laughs> it was definitely cool. It was one of those... Uh, ridiculous moments in my career that if i were to try to write a book for you know i think that the moments the moments of my real life have been much stranger than fiction so
0: but you were talking about at the time of wanting to break into japan and i, I can't remember if the, what advice that i gave you or whatever happened and lo and behold you ended up breaking into japan so talk a little bit about all japan and your time there and are you still working there if if you could
1: I uh it was kind of something that was always along the the plans of going to Mexico. I thought it would get me to Japan because mm-hmm. CMLL works with New Japan. Right. Uh, I was assuming that naturally, you know, putting the work in there would be a door, you know, to get into New Japan. And it didn't actually work that way because New Japan has their contract with Ring of Honor, so a lot of their American right. talent right. has to come
0: through Ring of Honor and AAA, I believe too. Right.
1: I, maybe I I don't <laughs> know now. There's, There's
0: some-, some relationship there, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's pretty complicated because they always have different relations with everybody over there. Some, mm-hmm. you know. But anyway, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to go to New Japan. And at this point, you know, that's when I started working heavily with Ultimo Dragon. And every show he would do in Mexico, it would be me and him on top working against each other. So the first time he invited me to Japan, he did what was called Lucha Fiesta, Ultimo Dragon's Lucha Fiesta, gotcha. which is his Lucha Libre event in Cork and Hall. And this is, you know, this is probably my 10th year in wrestling. And just like every young wrestler, that's one of my dreams. Growing up watching kibashi, Masawa, Onida, Hayabusa, so, you know, I wanted to be there. But it's always eluded me. It's, you know, so many wrestlers are in line to go to Japan. People are flying themselves to Japan or going to stay at dojos and whatnot. It was very difficult for me to get my foot in that door. Finally, after the 10th year, Ultimo Dragon invited me for this event. And the main event, Cork and Hall, my first match in Japan was me, Joe Doring, and uh, Diamante against Junakiyama, uh, Mm. Mystico, and Ultimo Dragon. So even though, you know, it took a lot longer than I had planned on it, I was able to get there and and do it in big fashion. And it felt so nice because I was able to, you know, I'd like to think I did it the right way. You know, there's so many people that want to go. And like I said, they'll, they'll, you know, sell their souls out or pay people to go or whatever. I was actually treated like a, you know, like a wrestling superstar when yeah. I got there. You know, the, the young wrestlers were carrying my bags. I'm sitting at the back of the bus and I'm just, you know, pinching myself. And that's when I learned, you know, that their style is another completely different thing to American style. And from what I've learned is again, going back to being able to switch up what you do to the audience that you're performing in front of. Mm -hmm. And it it was a very stark contrast between CMLO and All Japan audience. That's for damn sure.
0: Well, and and once again, it kind of mirrors what I did, even with Dragon, except for at the time it was WAR. But um, with All Japan, were they doing business? Is this something you could do more of?
1: At the time, they weren't really bringing many foreigners over. Joe Doran was like the only foreigner that they were flying in. But Ultimo dragon is so well respected that he was able to kind of nudge Akiyama in the right direction. Gotcha. So Akiyama was, uh, I wrestled with him in arena Mexico, his first match he's ever had down there. So sure. we kind of built a rapport just being in arena Mexico and just being at these, uh, you know, parties and whatnot together in Mexico. So getting invite, you know, they knew that I was, I was validated if you will, because they didn't see me as a young American wrestler. They almost saw me as like a, a Mexican wrestling star. Which was just unbelievable, you know, being weird, cutting promos in English in Japan, you know, talking to Mexican wrestlers. It's just yeah, yeah, exactly. Stranger than fiction, but uh, getting there—that's when it really started to, you know, I was really able to show people what I could do over there because that's one of the places where, you know, they really want you to thrive and do your best things. And I—I I consider myself like a classic throwback to 1986 Memphis wrestling that's kind of my style, you know, all the, the shoot, the headlock, all that stuff that's gone. Now they ate it up in Japan. They love it because they grew up with the Dory funks and the Dick Slaters and the Terry's and the, you know, Harley races. The fact that right now wrestling has kind of evolved into what you would call the indie style, which is a bit of a hybrid of all three styles, you know, Lucha, uh, Puresu. Right, right. That seems to be the flavor of the month right now to the point where in my opinion, it almost feels like classic American pro wrestling is gone. Mm-hmm. nobody's doing just a tackle drop down hip toss drop kick kind of wrestling right the fact that i was able to stay true to that for so long almost kind of like catapulted me in japan the people were like oh we like this guy because yeah. he's you know he, he i delivered sentiments to what they used to like mm-hmm. so you know it, it's funny because everybody wants to you know go out strong style the strong style wrestlers or out lucha the luchadors when realistically, you know, if you get your basics right, and you know, just stick to your guns. You might have a better chance in Japan. But that's, that's
0: what wrestling is or in the States. You know, I did a abdominal stretch in my match with Orange Cassidy a couple weeks ago and people were flipping out. I'm like, it's an abdominal stretch, but no one uses it. So, let's do an abdominal stretch. They see 18,000 topes in a, in a show and no uh, abdominal stretches. So, what the hell?
1: Well, it's funny because, you know, I, I do my best to evolve and just stay relevant. You know, you can't just… All of a sudden, go work at Chin for four hours. You know, people right. don't want that. But there is so many things in the past that I still look to. You know, to be able to. You know, it's not even to keep it relevant. It's almost to introduce something new. Yeah. Because you know, what's old is always new. That's again. right. And, and I mean, I like to think. You know, I don't know how many people that are listening to this know anything about me or my career. But you know, like I said, I've, I've been lucky enough to stay busy and work for my bosses and make my bosses happy. Happy enough that I'm staying busy that I don't need to go set the world on fire on Twitter. I don't need to have a gift that makes people lose their mind. You know, I'm basically just taking it one step at a time. And I think, you know, in my 12 year career, I've been able to do so much by staying kind of, you know, uh, true to my guns and more classic American style. And it's just, it's helped me so much that I think if anything, maybe people want to kind of, you know, try to do that again, try to you know bring back out the, the classic stuff because I think there is a whole new market for it here today. Well,
0: as we wind down here, it seems like the one country that you haven't conquered is your own country in America. What do you think the plan is? I mean, who knows when wrestling is even coming back, but what's the next step for Sam Adonis now?
1: Uh, I honestly have no idea where I can be. All I know is that I'm working every day to be the best professional wrestler on the planet. You know, I know that's ridiculous to say, but I know what I'm capable of. I know what I've done and I know, you know, just by putting the pieces together in my own head, what I could make happen here in the United States. The funny thing is, you know, I've been able to do what I do in all three countries without a microphone. That's something that's wow. you know, in my opinions, even probably more difficult, you know, to be able to tell your story without a microphone. And I know damn well, <laughs> if you give me a microphone, you know, I, I think I will have the opportunity to really do some good business. But I'm always busy doing small independent shows, so I can't turn down my payday for an opportunity to work an event for free that could be the opportunity. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure it does. So there's a million independent companies in the United States that I would love to work for that I've, I've never been invited to. I've never been able to work for because you know there are so many people in line trying to get into these places.
0: Ah, uh, they want you to come in for a, for a Freeman's. Exactly. Gotcha.
1: And I've put in so much work that I'm happy to not have to do that these days. However, I feel like sometimes it keeps me at the back of the line because there's so many people just, you know, constantly stepping up. I'll do it for free. I'll drive in. I'll, I'll,
0: yeah, I gotcha. I gotcha. I gotcha.
1: You you know, so I, I really think, you know, I really believe in hard work paying off. I, I know enough people now and, and just, uh, you know, I come across enough really good wrestlers throughout the world that eventually somewhere, somehow, somebody in the right position will know about me. I think, you know, hard work pays off. I will get, you know, what I have worked for. And I think, you know, my best days really are ahead of me.
0: Oh, absolutely. And like you said, it's the same thing talking to a bunch of different people. I just talked to EC3 earlier and none of us knew that we were going to be in the middle of a freaking pandemic where everything just shut down, you know, and whether you're getting let go from WWE or like you said, not having gigs to go. So you have to work. Uh, other jobs, or even for us. Yeah, I'm working, but I'm working in front of nobody. It's really weird. You know, like there was more people at a Tony Candelo show in 1991 in freaking Winkler, Manitoba than there is at the Daily Place. But we just have to do what we can to, to, to keep the ball rolling and keep the lights on until people can come back into the arenas.
1: For sure. It's just something that, I, I mean, it's affected everyone just immensely. And it's a terrible situation, but I think at the end of the day, you know, you kind of have to just have hope in your heart. No matter what walk of life you have, you have to just, you know, pick something and figure it out and then work towards it, you know, and make something your own. But like I said, as far as professional wrestling goes, this is not ever, it's never been a decision. It's never been a choice. This is who I am, you know, and it's gotten to the point now, you know, I'll be wrestling 13 years in February. And, you know, in, in that 13 years, I feel like, you know, the the line has been blurred a little bit. I'm just right. as comfortable be, being Sam Adonis, the character, as I am Sam Polinsky, you know, the person in certain atmospheres. And, and I feel like just knowing that the future is going to be, you know, what I make of it. It's not about sitting back and crying and waiting for an opportunity. You know, it's about trying to make opportunity and do the best I can. So. I think the best is yet to come and I just, uh, I don't know. Last question for you.
0: What's your favorite match that you ever had?
1: I would probably say the Negro Cassis one would be up there, but there's another special one in my heart from Italy. When I, uh, 2013, my first main event match in Italy, I wrestled Carlito and uh, there was a show where the dressing room, we had no access to the arena. So none of the boys saw how many people were out there. And we thought it was just a small independent show. And we came out and there was 4,000 people. So that was my first uh, taste of, of, you know, the, the big stage or whatever. So, uh, that one was really cool. Uh, Negro cast blue Panther was a big one. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't really do a lot of this for me. I do it more for the people. So, you know, the more, the more, the the match that sent the people home, the happiest, I'll always call my best match.
0: <laughs> well, Sam, I'm, I'm glad you reached out to me to do this. And, uh, it was a blast. Great job. And I think it's only a matter of time before you get a shot at some point in the States and then be back. Be uh, have to give up your job delivering shit and get back into delivering the goods in the ring.
1: Yeah, I hope so, man. I thank you so much for having me on here. I, I don't. I, this is kind of an opportunity to be seen by a lot of the American fans that don't really follow CMLL or All Japan. So if it's okay, if, if everybody can find me on Instagram, I'm at real Sam Adonis. Uh, it's kind of like a personal uh, photo book and collection of all the cool things I've done and what's ahead in my life. So I appreciate this, man. And I hope to God we get to do it again sometime.
0: Is there a picture of me uh, announcing you in the ring and uh, the, the the hall in Pittsburgh, the Veterans Hall?
1: Would be willing to bet, <laughs> but I would have to check. I'm saying there's a I
0: was nine. so paranoid. I was like, you can't put that on your video. If Vince finds out, I could get in trouble.
1: Yeah, you were still under contract at that point. Man.
0: I was. I probably shouldn't have done it, but who cares? It was fun so (laughs) well thanks dude I appreciate it man stay safe we'll talk soon thank you so much Chris I appreciate it man later